This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hello and welcome to the Dad Vengers podcast, sponsored by Tonka, because being tough is all about getting out and playing. My name's Nigel Clark, and I'm founder of Dad Vengers and host of this wonderful parenting podcast where we explore different aspects of parenting and hone in on the dad point of view. But it's not just about the dads. Mums, grandparents, carers, soon-to-be parents, we want you involved in the conversation too. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, please, please, please subscribe. It's so important because we can only continue to have important conversations like this if we can prove you're out there listening and subscribing is the best way to let us know. So let's talk, let's laugh, let's share the things we find difficult and become the type of dads we really want to be. This week's guest won the 2004 Laughing Horse New Act of the Year Award and has since then climbed the comedy ladder to become one of the UK's top comedians. He's also a presenter and host of the brilliant Man Baggage podcast. And if that wasn't enough, he's also written an incredibly insightful yet funny book about growing up with the most ultimate of alpha males. I'm so pleased to welcome him to the podcast. It's the hilarious and fantastic Russell Kane. Hello. Dude, I'm so pleased to have you here. Mate, I haven't heard the Laughing Horse trotted out for quite a long time. Dude, I wanted to go back to the start, back to the beginnings, back to the essence. Okay, <laughs> I'm with you. The thing is, I, I've really enjoyed looking forward to this one because I didn't realise we had so much in common. I grew up in Enfield, dude, a different side of Enfield. but I... You grew up in the good side, I can tell by your accent. <laughs> I grew up in Enfield. Um, I had mates at school that would... Uh, frequent some of the pubs that your dad used to frequent. Um, I used to work at Roller Express. Are you joking? No, I'm not joking. During the day though, not in the evening, obviously. <laughs> in the day, as a roller skating like steward, not like down at Desire 93, giving it large, going ooh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> but just, just that I think that we'll, because we grew up in the same places and I enjoyed listening to your book so much, I think that we've got a lot to talk about and a lot to laugh about and a lot to, to get into. So yeah, thanks for being here. Great. My pleasure. So let's start with your dad and growing up with the most ultimate of alpha males. You talk so um, eloquently about it in the book. And for me, the detail, the detail that you can remember from your childhood is, is amazing. It's like, it's like almost you were taking a journal. Did you take a journal? I didn't, but Lindsay says this to me as well, but I didn't realise that's not normal. So I say to Lindsay, you know, what did you do? She's like, well, I don't remember anything before I was nine. Lindsay's dad doesn't remember anything before he's 16. So I don't, I don't think it's usual to remember as much as I do. And the reason I know whether they're real memories or, fo or false memories is we, we moved when I was five. So it's really easy for me to know what I'm remembering between birth and five because I'm remembering the flat. 
I can see the flat, I can see the rooms, I can see the corridor, I can remember the bathroom, I can remember my bedroom, I can remember my cot, only one memory in the cot, but it's very distinct. Um, so there's a lot of memories there, but after five or six, my memory's r really quite sharp, like I can delve in. I can't remember like what I was doing when I was eight, but I've got lots of memories where I know, well, I was probably about seven, eight or nine, then I can use photos to try and pinpoint when that was. I don't know, I've just, I've, I've just always had a good a memory of event. Awful short-term memory, absolutely abysmal. Don't get me to post a letter. Don't get like, we could work together a <laughs> hundred times and then I would insult you by forgetting your name. But I would remember what you studied at university, where you lived, what food you like, what languages you speak, but then I would forget your name. So something's really obviously weird in my brain. When I was listening, I, I wondered whether you had such a sharp, acute memory of certain things because they affected you so much. Maybe, yeah. I mean, that's the same as all, all memory, I suppose. I've, I have noticed that the happier the person the less memories they have. They're also, I don't mean to be horrible because we all want our kids to be happy. We want people to be happy, but there is a horrible link between people that had a happy childhood and growing up to be boring. Not always. There's plenty of people that had a happy childhood that, that grew up interesting. There's a, I can think of already a handful of like um, entrepreneurs and world leaders and artists who are really interesting and had brilliant childhoods. But a lot of people who have brilliant childhoods are quite beige in the end. And a lot of us who had more interest, my childhood was not unhappy, I can say that right off the top, uh, but it was more interesting and nuanced and there was a bit more conflict and there was, I was a bit more like a cuckoo that didn't feel like I didn't belong or something. Uh, and it sort of, it tempers the metal a bit more with the hammer of experience. And I suppose each one of those little hammer blows, you're, you're more likely to remember, even if they're positive. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many different little stories that you tell that make that I just wanted to ask questions about and yeah let, let's let's just delve into them um he loved his car didn't he and he was all about the fact that you had to work hard at whatever you did there was no there was no um shying away from anything there was no oh getting out of doing anything it was all about working hard to get what you wanted, even if that was at the demise of something that you we, you could benefit from. Yes, I, I that was my dad's main thing—a sort of Jesus-like cross in the lounge about how hard everything needed to be if it was any good. You must graft, you must work hard. Ideally, you must die from your hard work, and then everyone talks about how hard you worked after your death. So, a sort of Christ-like sort of Christian, it's weird because there's no Christianity in my family at all. My dad was sort of a Jewish extraction way back, but there's no Christian extraction in my family, nothing. But very, very follows that Christian narrative of sacrifice, suffering and pain is what you give to the family to bring happiness and cleanse it of sin and all that. It's almost biblical, my dad's level of misery and, and self-sacrifice. And that was what it was all about. Hard work and sacrifice is the only way to success. And I did a a show recently with someone called Jake Humphrey, and I direct you to his amazing book, High Performance. He has a Jake's an old CBBS person from like my my right. circles. Yeah, yeah. He has proper people on, and now and again he has like a weird wildcard one like me, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Apparently my episode was quite good, so I'll be like on after someone like Lewis Hamilton or someone like ridiculous like Are We Me, and I said to him, the formula that I've come up with in life is a modification of my dad's formula. Yes, I'm su I'm successful, right? I'm successful in earning money, 
despite the market not being favorable to my demographic. There's been obviously an adjustment at the moment. We need more representation on TV. I back that. And so for someone like me to continue to try and grow in this environment, you've got, you've got to work hard and, and do it on the basis of I, I still belong in this conversation, right? And um, it's very tempting to fall into my dad's habit of hard work plus sacrifice equals success but he missed a vital component. So I actually put it in brackets, hard work plus sacrifice, multiplied by joy equals success. (laughs) If you remove the joy component from your journey, you will end up rich and miserable or poor and miserable or trapped and miserable. I guarantee it. My dad was a skilled manual laborer. He removed asbestos and insulation. He was on 40, 50 grand a year. In the 1980s, we were rich, work, what I would call upper working class. The man had nothing to be miserable about. Mercedes on the drive, two at the time healthy sons. My brother is very sick now, but two healthy sons. Swimming pool dug into the garden. I know, yes, it was the a for, story of the it was a former, pool. It's a former council house. Yes, but get the chips off your shoulder, Dad. It, we've doubled the size of our, what was a council house into, a, into what today's got to be like a 400 grand property. Yeah, what what was there to be miserable about? But it's because the hard work and the sacrifice was without joy. And people listen to this and they go, yeah, but I work in McDonald's, Russ. It's all very well for you. Where's my joy? You need to look, either using meditation, faith, ninja mind tricks, or changing your job for the joy and the luck in what you're doing. Get a picture of a Syrian or a Ukrainian dad on your phone. Whatever it takes to realise how lucky you are to be sat in your comfy sofa after flipping burgers or whatever. Find the joy in what you're doing or don't do it or change the way you're operating. Then the money will come with the happiness. If money, and also you get to define the elements in that equation. Success doesn't mean money. Success means whatever it means to you. I'm end a massive believer in what you just said about enjoying what you do. I'm an advocate for that as well through and through. If you enjoy what you do, you're going to work harder at it. You're going to enjoy it while you do it. You're going to push it to new levels. You're going to push it to new boundaries. And then you will just feel more fulfilled as a person. So I am in full agreement to all of that. Ultimately, it's the short answer to your question is it blighted my dad's life and he died a miserable man with a 40 grand Mercedes on the on the drive and a, and a 300 grand house. How do you die miserable like that? How? How? What I, what I also took from the book about your dad was that he was the way he was because of the experiences that he had as a child, again. And your nan, your nan was not the nicest of people, was she? No, she was a bit of twisted type old Harridan, sm- bronchial, emphysemic, smoking, stinky old witch. I mean, she died when I was seven. I don't remember anything except the sort of crone in the corner of the room. She hated me because I was dark-skinned, dark-eyed and dark-haired. You I mean, you've got to understand how complicated this is. I know, uh, obviously, you're black, so you, there's the whole thing about colorism, where you come from. But imagine how f***ed up, if I can even appropriate the word colorism for this conversation is when you're coming from Jewish extraction and your nana, much as she's half Jewish, nana Eva, is praying for a blonde child. It's, I suppose it's the same thing, really. But, uh, but it's more complicated. I, it's, I know it's complicated when uh, black people are, who should be proud of African heritage are lusting after light skin. That's complicated enough. But imagine if you're lusting after light skin when the people who lusted after light skin got boners over butchering you. I mean, that's so 
up and so my my great granddad the, the jewish one granddad wolfie he would cross the street from jewish people he would not want jewish people in his shop so he was ra racist and i think you can't there's a debate about whether you can call jewish a race you can you can measure the dna you can see it ashkenazi jew is is it's in the blood you can measure it it is a, it is a race it's not even a debate um and so he's racist i, I mean i I've never, I didn't even know that was a thing until, until I got to 11 or 12 and my dad explained it to me. And so Eva was lusting after this blonde child. My dad came out, blonde hair, blue eyes, blonde curly, like Jufro hair. And, uh, and of course I come out, this sort of dark skin, gypsy looking thing because of my mum's side. So she couldn't, she just did, she rep, I represented so much. I was taking her baby David out of the home, age 35. And I was this sort of dark-skinned cuckoo that was nothing like him. I wasn't masculine. I didn't have much. I wasn't into football and climbing. I was effeminate. And there was just no connection there. And she put into my dad that everyone always lets you down. It will end in everyone always leaves. Your dad left you, which, of course, my dad did leave him when he was 18 months. You know, everyone's an arsehole. Don't trust anyone. And unfortunately, he took that on board. But sooner or later... And this is a big conversation we've had in 2020, if you like, a cultural conversation. You've got to break those chains of, of misery from the generation. But otherwise, you sort of, it, you're, you're enjoying your wound. You know, like, oh, look at my wound. And it only gets you so far. And I just refused to carry it on. I could have just carried that on. I could have carried on my dad's life. I'll probably fail. I'll probably die in poverty. I probably will die in poverty. That's the face of most stand-ups. To end up with nothing in the end when you're not the next big thing. But I don't focus on that because I've chosen not to. Do you think there was a defining moment where you, you said, right, I'm never turning out like that. I'm going the opposite way. I'm, I'm going to, to make some sort of change so that I don't end up like my dad. Well, so I was obviously born a bit weird and different with all this energy. <laughs> Everything I've turned my hand to, I've worked harder. I'm, I'm average intelligence, average height, average... I, I, would, I, about mean, I don't average. think you're average I've measured it. I, I've measured it. I, every test you can take, I've taken out of ego. And I'm in the absolute middle IQ on every test you can do, apart from... Um, sort of language skills, but that's because I've learned so many words. If I locked you in a room and said, learn the dictionary, trust me, you would learn it, right? So it's not intelligence, is it? It's just, it's willpower. There's nothing special about me. It's crucial people understand this. I'm not, I'm sat here five foot 10 with an average IQ. Uh, so, and I've done everything off the back of that. And I've been like that from the moment I realized I didn't want to smoke weed over the park and just become another statistic. And that happened at 19, started dating a posh girl and I was determined to get to university. And I've done that. I did it with a jewelry career. I did it with an advertising career and I've done it with comedy. So all those things were happening anyway, which were unlike my dad. My dad was quite defeatist. What's the point in trying? The point where I threw away the life, lose your temper down on yourself fully was when I did the Hoffman process. And that was much later on. In fact, that was in 2009. And the Hoffman process is a residential course where you just, I wouldn't call it therapy, that sounds a bit extreme, but you just sort of get to the bottom of any demons. And that was the, the tape that my dad had put in there. Doesn't matter how good it is, you are, it will turn, it will fail, it will turn crap. If you can't find your car keys, why not put your fist through the connecting wall? All of that stuff. I didn't, I didn't want to have children or get married with those traits. So there was an incident, I lost my temper, and I thought, 
I'm getting that fixed. I only have, I've never hit another human being, even at school. I've never hit a man. I've never, I've never had to even defend myself in a pub. It's always hurting myself, punching a wall, you know, ripping a wing mirror off. And I headbutted a plate, basically. I lost my temper, cut my head open really bad, ended up in hospital. I was like, I could have blinded him. This is fucking insane behavior uh, over, over a mislaid car key or, or something ridiculous. And I was, I was getting the self, it's all bordering on self-harming. It was getting dangerous. And I thought, I've got to get it fixed. And I think that was the moment I put, I buried finally my final traits of, of my father, just for safety. And that moment was when you decided to go onto the, uh, onto the Hoffman process. Yeah, yeah. I got, I got stitches in this side of my head. I've got a scar up here. I'm lucky I've got thick hair, so you can't see the scar. I had to go to Edinburgh with stitches in my head. I lied to everyone, pretending I passed out from exhaustion. I'd lied about these other marks on my arms, which were all like, being a dickhead and all that and I just thought this is getting ridiculous now I'm, I'm a sort of battered husband and the, I'm being abused by myself yeah. and covering it up for everybody in fact when I ended up in casualty I got taken into a room and my poor the girl I was with at the time she got interrogated because they were convinced you know stuff was something was being done to me and I was covering up wow wow did I've got a couple quick questions about the Hoffman process. How long did you do it for? It's eight days residential. Okay. You check in at the door. Yeah. You have to give your phone in. You're not allowed to exercise. They even specify, please don't masturbate. The reason is they, you're not allowed to do anything that distracts just from listening and talking. It's mostly group based. Most people were pro what I call properly up antidepressant people suicide survivors. Yeah. And yeah. there were people like me with like a middle class problem, like an explosive temper they need to solve. Uh, and you're all thrown in, and I've never seen so many people change in a week. It's incredible. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's an NDA, so I can't describe what yeah, takes yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that we don't the reason to... is the surprise is part of the therapy. If I if I were to describe it, you wouldn't be able to do it because okay. the shock of you want me to do what today is taken away because you would know what was coming. Wow, 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 wow! That's really, really it's exciting, inspiring, and it it throws into that whole men um, accepting therapy and wanting to change and that whole thing. So I want to touch on that while we're, while we're here. Um, you went and did that on your own because you, you realised you got to a moment where you're like, no, this is, this is silly. Men don't often, and I, I'm, I'm painting broad strokes here, men find it hard to get to that point. They will lie to themselves over and over and over and say, no, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm one of the lads, I'll be right, I'll be able to get through it. And getting them to that point is really, really difficult. And even when they get there, sometimes they still won't take a, any support. Was there no intervention from anyone to suggest that you do that? No, because the whole thing was hidden. The only person who knew about it was the girl I was with at the time. People would be, I'm so like, I'm such an unviolent person. Like I've, I don't come, I come from quite a, as you know, the rough side of Enfield. There was two doors down for weed, another do door down for solid, trips, three doors down, amphetamine, MD, everything you wanted. Yes, there was. Brims down, the baby, brims down. Yeah, the gang thing wasn't as big as it was today, although I believe Enfield is literally, as far as I understand, the stab capital of, of London now, unfortunately. Wow. Um, so there was, there was those rough elements. So I, I've grown up <clears throat> in that environment, getting high, going to pubs. I've never been in a pub fight. I've never been in conflict. I've never had to hit anyone. I am the guy that can diffuse any situation, which is why I've ended up doing what I'm doing. So I think people will be shocked. I've only just started talking about this this year, by the way, um, to hear that I had a sort of 
violent trait in me where I could people, I can't imagine you slamming the door and being like people can't imagine me taking that book off the shelf and ripping it in a half in a temper but that's the thing I've done before um and it's just whatever part of my brain that's supposed to regulate temper just wasn't trained properly now I could it might be a, 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 a I might have been born with it, but it's much more likely I've learned it from my dad, who would like. I would say so. From the stories you tell in the book, I would. Yeah. Yeah, and never violent. And again, my dad never violent towards me. Um, and obviously, I've, only time I ever saw him violent towards people was in a professional capacity because he was a bouncer. But uh, any 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 uh, never violent towards people. Never would get out and like knock someone out in the street in an argument. You know. So I, I've learned not to hit people, but I've also haven't learned about emotional regulation properly and uh, I just so the only person there saying that's a bit weird was the poor girl who was tolerating me and uh you know she, she but she know I don't think she said you need to seek help she was just like you mental what's wrong with you type thing and I, it was me the but the good the but the that is the you've got to get to a point where you are ready to make change it doesn't matter whether you it's giving up cigarettes watching too much porn uh not ready to commit cheating on your missus whatever it is it doesn't matter if your mates step in with behavioural change, you've got to be ready to make the change. With protective, it's important your mates step in if there's, if there's an acute risk of suicide or yeah, depression. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm a smoker, my mate stepping in is probably going to make me smoke more. You know, and, and it, was, it was habitual, this temper regulation. And it was hidden, like a lot of de depression and behavioural traits in men. It's so hidden. I've got things on my arms. I used to keep house rabbits and I used to just say, oh, that's the rabbits, you know, you can't train. And then it's not from rabbits. It's from me like punching something in a temple, like a laptop or a telly or something. It's crazy. Did you discover anything when you were on the Hoffman process that surprised you or did you know deep down it was there already and it was like, okay, right, we've got to deal with this now? What surprised me was that it worked. <laughs> I'm so, because it's so, I'm so sceptical like therapy works a bit and then you have to come out and you have to work it here. Oh, I have bad days and I have good days but ultimately my therapy's got me over a depression that is 99.9% .9 of people I speak to mine was went in with stitches healing in my head after Edinburgh having periodically say once a month once every two months at some weird temper thing not within the normal realm where I end up with blood trickling down me since I was about 14 I'm now it's now 2009, I'm 34 years old. Eight days later, I've never had a single incident ever again, not even close, not even a, nothing, not a temptation. Yes, I've got the normal idiot bloke stuff. I'm quite capable of slamming a door or shouting, cough up the stairs, normal working class man stuff. It doesn't need fixing, don't beat yourself up, lads. But I've not done any weird psycho, pick up a pencil, see what it feels like to stab it in my arm type behavior. Never again. Never, literally not once. That's amazing. It's like miracle cure. That was the most surprising thing. Now what they do is, this isn't spoiling it, they, they take away all the outer layers of your adulthood and they get back to like the eight-year-old moment. Um, some of it's a bit american and weird, but I'm so resistant to that that if it works for me, it'll work for you. And they just get back to those tapes when they were put in. There's some you've got tapes installed in you like like recordings mp3 files your life it will go if it doesn't get off yeah that's what was running inside me they were running there put in by my old man i just took them out that was the end of that wow I, I, what i think uh men listening to this might find really attractive about that process is that it's it doesn't seem like it's an ongoing process a lot of therapy that you'll go to or you hear about you, you hear about years and years you know you've got to unpick this and go at it for a long 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 time 
I would say it's analogous to chemo. It's hot, it's intense, you're in, you're out, you're sick when you're there, and then if it works, you're cured. Not slightly cured. You're cured. Are you ever cured? You come out with tools, just like you would after cancer treatment. You need to do physio, you need to work. You come out with your little pamphlet, with your little Hoffman daily check-ins you can do. Obviously, there's, there's work you can do on your own, but there is no Hoffman part two. They don't offer it. Every couple of months, maybe, I'll get a letter sent to me from, some, from someone that's done it, thanking me for recommending it. We are so happy to have Tonka as our sponsor this series. Basic Fun's Tonka collection is packed full of fun vehicles for kids who want to get out and get tough with their toys. So dads, you've got no excuse. Grab that mighty steel classic truck. It's time to head to the sandpit for some tough play. So from listening to the book, it sounds like you've spoken to your mum about growing up and, and the way your dad was. Um, what did she think about the whole situation? So my mum was useful as a sounding board, helping me to remember stories, but I don't take it too far with her, otherwise it descends into, oh, you know, what do you want to do, get a time machine and pick a better man to, to mate with type thing, which I don't, I don't want to make her feel guilty for having me, <laughs> which is, what, that's the only place the conversation can end up, because you've got to remember, I was never abused, I was never hit, I never went hungry, we went on a nice, from when I was 11, foreign holiday a year, we lived in a nice house, so my mum's done nothing wrong by standing by my old man, there was not, there was... No bad things happening. We were just different people. That's all that went wrong with mine and my dad's relationship. He came from a very tough, ultra-masculine world. Expect the worst. It will be the worst. Be ready for the worst. So we just not we just weren't compatible as human beings. It's not my. That is no one's fault. You know, my mum was um, very, was young when she had me. Not as young as my nan, who was sixteen when she had my mum. So we. It's not, a, you didn't really have time. You know, you get to, into your mid-30s. If you have kids in your 30s, you really think about what woman, you look at that woman different. Like if I think about the girls I was dating in the 20s, I was probably attracted to the slightly f***ed up ones whose dad went away because they were normally quite good in the sack, <laughs> normally. And uh, and then you get into your 30s and you think, it's more attractive when you see a girl and she's with an, a mum and dad that didn't divorce and her dad's really gentle and kind and they're engaged in hobbies and you think, she's probably not going to be a nutter when she drinks white wine and that becomes more and of course it's true uh, and so I just think it wasn't time for my mum to evaluate my old man on that level because yeah. you know, she was so young herself it's one of the things that you talk about as well um, people having children young in the in the circles that you were around and how you didn't want that to be you when I was in, like, in my first relationships, like 16, 17, I was sort of, I'm going to want to have kids with this person if I could just get to, we just need to get to 25. 25 was when I want to have children sort of thing, because that was, you got to remember to me, that was older. So my cousins, male and female, will all start having their first children around 16 and 17. At least five or six of them have done that, as did all my aunts and uncles, including my mum, although my mum waited to the grand old age of 20 to have me. Um... But once I got past that initial chaotic late teenage relationship and started to see a world out there with university and I saw mountains in the distance, I suddenly realised, let's get my nest feathered first. Let's get it properly feathered. I don't want to take it too far and be like a creepy 70-year-old dad or anything. I thought if I just roughly follow the biology of a woman, then it's within nature it's fair then so a woman can still have babies until she's in her mid 40s a lot of women and certainly by 40 so I thought as long as I've had my babies by the time I'm 41 42 let's let's just go for it 
And that's, that was my thinking. And sure enough, Mina came along when I was 39 and it's, it's worked out like clockwork. It was just, I wanted my shit in order. I wanted money in the bank. I wanted house. I wanted my career established. I didn't want to do it the other way around. Were you, were you worried about being mentally ready for it? Yes, but not after Hoffman, I wasn't. <laughs> ah, so that changed that as well. Yeah, but I've always been good. With, my mum was a nanny and a child mind. That's I'm very comfortable, particularly around small babies. I know all about sleep and feeding and all the routines and all the stuff that a lot of men worry about. I know backwards because of what my mum did for a living. And in fact, with me and Lindsay, I actually sort of led that side of things. The, the routine, the sleep routine, the feeding, the weaning, the nappies, the breast pump I, I i was in charge of all of that shit, um because that's what i knew and I, I enjoyed it so i wasn't scared that i wouldn't be mentally ready for that side of things it sounds like uh the way you describe it you were fully immersed from day dot as soon as mina was born you were up in it involved getting stuck in there are a lot of men that don't do that there are a lot of men that don't feel feel as comfortable as you you felt to do that um, how important is it and how much do you, did you realise or did you know that you benefited from throwing yourself in? The first thing I would say is mine and Lindsay's setup is not is definitely not normal. I know that because every time I talk about it, the couples that we're speaking to, the woman's jaws on the floor. <laughs> so you shouldn't, you shouldn't follow what I'm about to say because it doesn't fit in with 90% of men and 90% of women. However, if you can do a little bit of what I'm about to talk about, it will definitely help you bond with, with the baby. But broadly speaking, as a man, sadly, even though we're post-feminist and we're supposed to be equal, we're not. Your role for the first certainly six months, probably 18 months, is a sort of shit assistant manager at the side, checking <laughs> if, if anything needs doing and normally being told to fuck off. Which isn't um, too hard a job to be able to do. No, but if you want to be involved as a man, you'll feel quite inadequate and like you could, you get this jealousy sometimes because it's mummy and baby and then you can be sometimes in the spare room. You're like, what the f***? I've created something that's chucked me out of the nest. There's a bit of that that goes on. Um, if your wife has a C-section like mine did, you will be in the deep end whether you like it or not. Lindsay couldn't pick up the baby. Lindsay couldn't change a nappy for 14 days. So you're talking about a proper newborn still with a bit of, umbilical hanging off and you're doing everything you're lowering it into the bath for the first time Lindsay couldn't even have a bath for 10 days because she couldn't get the stitches wet she could only like stand up around a sink and she needed her mum to help her wash so I was in at the deep end anyway mechanically but there's no reason why you shouldn't be the problem is a lot of women go into this sort of animal mode where they don't want that and you're gonna just have to respect that it's as simple as that i mean from the moment minna came out she had to be born c-section because she was the wrong way around that's why she had to come out c-section um the the, the uh, midwife brought this baby out it was all going off i had like adrenaline rather than emotion it was more like um and a lot of men have said this i thought i was gonna have the my baby crying i didn't get that at all none of that till till minna was about maybe 18 months she started said daddy the first time and then my heart got flushed down the toilet but it was more like you know when you're in a, a a car accident or one of your mates been in a fight or you're waiting for an ambulance or your mates passed out you're in like a but you're the one solving it you've got like an adrenaline and you're you're on it and you're taking care of everyone it was more like that sort of buzz that's the that's the mode i was in and they put they took the baby out and they went to lay it on Lindsay's chest and, she, and they went do you want to hold the baby she went absolutely absolutely not she went do you mind stitching my guts up first please <laughs> 
And so that's it. Literally from the first 30 seconds, I've got Lindsay's off her tits on all these drugs and she's obviously open at the abdomen. It was me. So I'm literally instructed to take my top off by the nurses and, and you have to put the baby on your chest for warmth. Uh, but not, it wasn't just a key dad joining in thing. I had to do it. Otherwise, Minna wouldn't have had a human heartbeat against hers, which is a way to start your life. So th that's me out outdoors on the maternity ward on my own for a good 40 minutes with this baby. That was that was amazing i'm not gonna lie to you i felt the absolute bollocks i felt so important and not many i don't know how many men get to the first cuddle with a child it's got to be less than one percent yeah, goes yeah. to the mum lays on the mum's boob even if she's unconscious they lay it on the mum's boob yeah. so i felt so privileged and Lindsay, to be fair to her like there's all forms of feminism and she is a small f she hates the word feminism she'd rather just live life equal without labels and I am equal to her in all departments. And she was like, it's your child. There you go, 50-50. And that's the way it's been from the beginning. But as much as I can, obviously, when I'm on the road with stand-up, it, it falls to her more. But with the sleep and the food and the nappies, I was on it, mate. I was on it like a professor. I've got a little book. I, want, I don't know where it is. Maybe it's upstairs. Where I was tracking for the first two days, Minna's natural bowel movements and feeding urges, looking for patterns. Wow, because dude, I knew that's serious. I, yeah, but listen, li any men listening to this, listen to me. If you can follow those patterns for the first seven days, don't do anything. You're not supposed to have a life. Feed the baby when it cries. Don't go to sleep. Have a ghost zombie existence for seven days. Yeah. You have to. But once that baby is back up to its birth weight, because babies drop weight in the first 24 hours, once it's back to its birth weight, look at your little book with all the things that's naturally happening. And in there are the clues to getting your baby through the night sleep-wise, in 12 weeks. I love All this. the clues are there. <laughs> They're there. But no one follows them. Everyone would rather stay up all night, have a baby in the bed. My mates, some of my mates, I've still got the kid in the bed at eight, nine years old. Oh, mummy, I want my mummy. Well, it's still a baby at seven, isn't it? And my, da my, daughter, is, my daughter is seven. I still, I still carry her to sleep. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, she's still a baby. So they still want to sleep in the bed with you. But newsflash, your marriage won't... It. Your marriage will not make it. <laughs> sort it out. Work work together. Together. Don't work against each other. What is your wife comfortable with? How far is she willing to go letting you help? How far are you willing to go helping her? And are you both interested in having a baby that sleeps through the night at 12 weeks? If you don't care, fast forward this bit. Don't listen to me. I'm not right. You're not right. <laughs> me for even saying it. If you are interested... Look at the, the, your child is giving you clues about when they're naturally sleeping and naturally poo. Help them to nudge that towards the right portion of the day. So you and your missus are back to having a bit of dinner, watching a film and having a sex life again within three months. Dude, I'm all about it. With my son, Rory, we had him down sleeping by 12 weeks. He was through the night and yeah, I, I'm with you. And what was your relationship like? Yeah, you, you look at each other. Obviously, we run a, a slightly later schedule here for the first five years before Mina started school because of my job. So we put Mina down at half eight, nine p.m., knowing we've got till nine p.m. the next morning. And you look at each other and think, I can't believe it. We've actually served a meal, can watch Love Island, watch a film, whatever. We had a life. We had a life as a couple within 12 weeks. I've got friends that have got kids aged five, seven and eight. They still don't have a life at all, nothing. We, we make rods for our own backs. We, we make rods for our own backs. And I think being able to, I don't want to say put your foot down, but like 
researching it and doing it the way you did it is, is gold for me, absolutely gold. Did you find that in a book or was that yourself? So the number one step, if you're pregnant now, right? Listen I, to we me, are okay, actually pregnant. And we're getting ready to right. have a baby in November. No, but you're, you're, already, you're already bossing it, so you're going to be fine. But, but make these agreements before the baby's born, before the emotions and the chaos and the tiredness kick in. Because if your wife is, well, I'm sorry, I do want the baby hanging off my boot. I do want my child close to me. I do want my child in the bed sleeping with me till I'm 18 months. Have those conversations now and work out how you can make that work as a couple. Because if you as a man are thinking, I don't want that baby in my bed, that problem's not gonna go away. It's not gonna magically resolve itself. You're gonna end up in the spare room, knocking one out to pornography, and your relationship's gonna go south, trust me. If you both want a baby to be in its own cot, even in its own room, NHS recommends from six months onwards, so I have to say that, we went from night number one, own cot, own room, uh, then work together and agree it, and then when all the, chaos kicks in you'll both have your target that you want agreed yes i used books um there's hundreds of resources out there for getting a baby to sleep through the night but there's also hundreds of resources if you want to be baby led and have the baby in the bed one is not right one is not wrong it's only wrong when two members of the couple are on a different page because the worst thing i think you could do for a baby is not give it formula milk not put it in its own bed or put it in the bed is for the mum and dad not to be tight loved up and solid. If you want the number one statistic that will lead to a fucked up teenager, it's a, ma a mum and dad that weren't functioning. Not whether that, not whether it sucked a tit or a bottle. Trust me. <laughs> gold, absolute gold. Yeah. <laughs> Total. It's gold. true though. It is. Everyone's like, oh, I'm, I formula fed my baby. I'm a failure. You're not a failure, darling. If you don't want to breastfeed, fuck what everyone else thinks. Are you and your husband functioning tight? Is your baby happy and healthy? 100 million times more important than whether you stuck a nipple in its mouth for three years. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, mate. With you all the way. I want to know about your relationship with Minna. How is it? You describe her as your little buddy. Is that right? Yeah, she's, I'm, I, I am dad, but we're, we're, we're also just speak the same language. It's the only way I could describe it. Um, I mean, it's weird because in life, normally when someone's similar to you, you see it with sisters or with parents and childs or with friends, you know, like in a friendship group, when someone's like you, you can tend to clash with them a bit. But for, but for whatever reason, I can't explain it to you in logical terms. Me and Minna are so similar. I mean, they say it's 80% nurture and 20% genetics, but this baby came out like performing doing impressions, she can do any accent already at six. She's, she's, she's complicated, she's got too much energy and ideas for her, for her intellect because she's only small. She struggles in the way I struggled at school. She excels in the way I excelled. And I just understand the rhythm of her challenges. She's so interesting as a child, shall we say, that we're definitely only having one. Um, that's, you know, once I met Minna, that's it, we're done. Um, so I find it slightly easier than Lindsay, I would say, um, because I'm able not to react. If Minna speaks to me like accidentally, I don't want to do it, take my dinner. I can approach that parenting moment without lava coming up inside me. Yeah, once lava comes up, you it's hard to not look to not be the parent that loses the battle or makes the situation worse. I, I really like 
the fact that you use your understanding of the way you went through stuff or experienced stuff and you can see that in your daughter and then you use that to make her her go at it or her experience of it better or just you're able to talk about it or you're able to say oh I know what you're feeling Mina you know yeah so we, we and Lindsay we do you know we don't agree or we don't necessarily agree so if Mina's like I don't want that toy it's rabbit like ungrateful in front of the person who's given the like real asshole sort of roll doll level of horrible behavior my approach is calm Mina I can see why you've done that I empathise. I can imagine being six and me doing that. But let me tell you why that is wrong and why you need to go and apologise. That's my approach. Whereas Lindsay, in fact, we had a discussion about this the other night, quite a heated one. She would rather I was a bit more, stop it now, a bit more alpha. I do do some of that, but I pepper it throughout the week. It's not my default and I don't find it doesn't come naturally to me. And that's probably where I'm kicking against how my dad was maybe. I don't know. And I, I've got to improve. I also awful, a really bad habit where Lindsay will say, Russell, she's, you know, it's two minutes in the bath. You need to tell her, she needs to get out. And I'll come in and go, so mummy said, and I'm like, fuck, I've just stitched Lindsay up there rather than coming <laughs> yeah, yeah, in insane. and saying two minutes out. So I'm sort of subcontracting the bad guy stuff to Lindsay. Yeah. And I'm not doing it on purpose, but that's a bit of cowardice and wanting to be liked by my little buddy on my part. I've got to work on that and I'm, I'm working harder on it. That's good, man. That's good. You threw something up into my mind there after you said about Mina and the gift and not being appreciative of the gift. It made me think of uh, in your book when your dad wasn't appreciative of a gift and when your nan wasn't appreciative of a gift as well. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it makes me think about whether there are traits that we don't even realise that are genetic, that just run through us in a way that we have no idea about. I mean, there's a, there's a thing at the moment. I mean, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say what you've said. Who knows? Is there is is there a gene for empathy? Yes, there is. And, and part of when you receive a gift is having enough empathy to make sure the other person's feelings aren't hurt as you open it. And that's something that grows as you get older. A six-year-old doesn't have that part of their brain yet. But will minas grow as less capacious as someone with more empathy? If it's genetic, yes. I think what's more controversial, and I don't buy into what I'm about to say, is epigenetic theory. And epigenetic theory says that Lin Minna's granddad on Lindsay's side, so sorry, Lindsay's granddad, Ukrainian, he just passed away last year, sadly. Thank God he's not seen all this stuff in the news. He went through the first Ukrainian in the 40s. He was 94, so it's up, whole family slaughtered in front of him, blah, blah, blah. Now, some epigeneticists believe that the pain of what Andrea Snitchny experienced can be passed down in the genes so that my daughter can grow up with an oppressed Ukrainian chip on her shoulder. I think shit like that is dangerous, personally. I don't want to live in a culture where someone can say, even though I never experienced... Russian um, enclosing my land and slaughtering my family. Somehow I carry that pain in my genes. I'm calling bullshit on that theory. Sorry. And even if it is real, even it is real, you for even going with it. You know, don't don't give in to that. You know, it's bad enough. It's bad enough that Mina's ancestors went through that slaughter and that famine, or other people's ancestors might have gone through whatever slavery or whatever. It, to start saying. It, I'm actually not just history I'm carrying it in my blood I find that dangerous 
really dangerous because it gives you a free pass away from work that needs to be done sometimes. Totally. I'm, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be signing up for that either. I think it's much more going to be from the fact that people in your family have talked about it. It's a chip on your family's shoulder. It's being talked about in that way and you you then feel you feel it and you're carrying it and you've heard it since you were a child and you've heard daddy talk about it and nanny talk about it and your auntie talk about it and all of those people rather than for it to have physically been pushed down in your dna the, the current the scientists currently put the ratio and they know 80 20 20 percent genetic so i think we've got way too hung up in the past mm. saying well your dad was miserable you're gonna be a bit it's just not true and we've got to stop saying it to kids i see parents are doing it by accident i see it like a little girl or oh stop being stop being miserable leanne stop being you just told the child she's she's miserable your dad's miserable you're being miserable like your dad is that genetic or are you yeah, reinforcing, exactly. reinforcing. Uh, uh, it's 80 percent. we know this because twins that get separated they get put back together and initially like, oh my god we're so the same but they're not as time goes on they're vastly different well how is that possible if they're genetically identical if you want if you want the proof of this go to one of the best films i've watched recently which is three identical strangers have you seen it no i about haven't. the triplets about the triplets that were separated at birth oh no wait America. is this a documentary docufilm yes. yeah 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 i've seen it i've seen it i know the one you mean they think they, they're like oh my god look our hands are moving at the same time uh thinking they were identical they weren't identical they were so different they had completely different life outcomes i don't want to spoil it but you know vastly different if you know what i mean um so your genes are not your destiny if you've had a time and you've had depression and you've had a son it's not foregone so pick your language carefully because that brain is very malleable till they're with men until they're 35 is the latest evidence so, you know, particularly if you're parenting a son, which I'm not, it's all the more important to use the right language and to mould that young man into what, what we want our next generation of young men to be. Yeah, definitely. Listen, Russell, we normally ask our guests to send a couple of questions in and we're at that point where I have picked a couple out to, to pose to you. Right, so we've had one from Rivenberg Life. And he says, how do you find balancing the demands of being on the road for work with getting enough family time? Uh, it's the worst part of my job and the bit that hurts the most. The thing that was surprise, surprising is you know, I'd taken the year off when Minna was born and I picked up a job filming abroad. Of course, a survival show when she was five months old on four different continents. I mean, the, wor the worst type of job at the worst possible time. And I was surprised how easy I found that. I think, I'm not being sexist here, but I think women may have struggled with that because of the societal guilt that's put on them. You've left you a baby. I was fine. It was just a slug with poo at one end and milk in the other. Yes, I loved holding her and goo 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 and the kisses. Once Minna started talking, I want my daddy, you know, he had little games, it's getting harder. And instead of getting easier as she gets older, it's getting harder. So now that she's six, nearly seven, it's the worst it ever has been. Even one night away, I feel weird. Because the thing that feels weird, if I was going away for one day and I was working solid, I wouldn't feel guilty, but I'm going away and then sat in like a nice hotel for six hours on my own. And I'm thinking, I've come away to sit on my own. That's out of order. 
even though physically I there's no other way of doing it logistically because I've got to be there for the gig. I feel like I should have brought her with me. I should find a way to bring my mum with me so I can be together in these six hours so I can be interacting. Lindsay needs a break. Lindsay's got her business. And that's a constant worry now mixed with the disciplinary things that we're having with me and where I've spoken about. And again, another unfashionable thing to say, well, instead of saying dad, let's just say two parents. Kids need, the, the, I think we're hardwired, hardwired not genetic, we're built for two parental figures. I don't care if it's two men, two women, man, woman, whatever whatever floats your boat. Yeah. But one sort of slightly more, wait, wait till I come home, sort of area manager, <laughs> it can be the woman. It is. My friends, yeah. in fact, yeah. my friends, my dad stays at home and she's the one that comes home with it, waving the fist. But without that sort of house of lords, as it were, ratifying and going over the legislation of the day, the behaviour slips. And that's the challenge. I'm having to jump onto Zoom or a phone at night. And have you done your reading? She's like, eh, and the phone's on the floor. She's like, I can't get in her face. Yeah. And that's what suffers. The the, the disciplinary development suffers. I get it's it. It's fucking hard, man. But I, love, <laughs> I wouldn't change my job. For, I wouldn't job my, it brings me so much joy that it's worth the work and sacrifice. My equation is balanced. Happy dad's better dad. Happy dad's a better dad. Uh, we've got one here from Ben Klopatanon who says, you mentioned in an interview 18 months after your daughter was born uh, that becoming a father for the first time didn't change your life. Do you feel the same seven years on? Yeah, well, I've answered it in the last one. The first 18 months were relatively easy. Maybe 18 months is a bit of an exaggeration because she was starting to speak and stuff. But I mean, I can remember, this is awful, but I'll admit it to so other parents feel less guilty about their smaller things they do. Um, I picked up a big job. And whenever I pick up a big job, 20% of whatever I'm earning has to go on an experience that can't be kept and that can't be saved. And I spend all that money on a holiday or something. It's just something I believe in. Nice. But uh, I don't want to take it to the grave. Do you know what I mean? And so Mina was six months old. anyway, so yeah, get rid of it. Exactly. Mina, <laughs> Mina was six months old. Mina was six months old. And I said, Lindsay, we're going to Antigua for five nights. You and me. We're leaving our baby for five nights solid. Now, I'm very lucky. We've got two, na we've got two nanas. We've got Nana South and Nana North. So Minna went to stay with my mum, I think, and we just got on an aeroplane and, and we went. And I was able to do that. I couldn't imagine doing that now. I could not imagine it. So what we do now is we take, we all go. I, me, Minna, Lindsay, and we take the in-laws and then me and Lindsay go off on little adventures here and there throughout the holiday. We might go one night clubbing or if we're at an all-inclusive resort like we were in Turkey, we'll go to the other bar and party and roll into the villa uh, or that we might have a join-in hotel rooms. So now, Lindsay and I, we do take little date nights away, but we don't go past one or two nights. Oh, that's lovely. That's really, really lovely. Okay, there's one question we ask all of our guests, and it's this one. If you could have a dad's superpower, what would it be and why? I think it would be able to, you know, like uh, just see into the future by five seconds when a temper's going to boil over. <laughs> you know, you see some of the X-Men that can just go and come back to the, the present moment. Because so, if I could get in there, once a, once a, a, a naught to eight-year-old has bubbled over, you, you, you've lost an hour or two, the, there's red eyes, the, the, the dinner's ruined. Yeah. So if you could just... Get a little alert that goes beep, 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 and get like a, a flash in a minute. She's going to drop a dolly's head or she's going to speak. <laughs> she's going to speak rudely to Lindsay and Lindsay's going to snap back. You could go, Lindsay, in a moment, Minna's going to speak to you rudely. Don't speak. I'm going to handle it back into the seat. Imagine that. that like a pre-police. 
of a meltdown. That's like and, 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 Minority Report of Dads. <laughs> minority Report, that's it. Uh, and I will just finish by, by saying, if anyone wants to know if I'm exaggerating by how highly strung my daughter is, I just want to put an issue out there that is actually more mainstream than people think. So I can only assume there's some parents out there living with this that don't talk about it. It does the child no harm. It's of no medical significance. And many kids suffer with it and they all grow out of it. And it's where a child loses their temper so bad that they pass out. Not little bit pass out. Pass out, blue, <laughs> tongue hanging out the mouth, wee themselves on the floor, look like a dead baby, pass out. Wow. Right? And that's what my daughter had from five months till four years. It's called involuntary breath holding. And what happens is on the first, say so you're like, you're not doing that. They go to cry and they can't get that first cry out. They keep breathing in and they're gone. And it looks much scarier than it is. Obviously the first time, it is genuinely scary. You think your baby's choking or dying or something, and you call the ambulance and all that. But after that, it's more of a problem for um, everyone else around you who don't know what's happening. If you're in a supermarket, you know, people call an ambulance, or if you're at a children's party, oh, the baby's dead. Like, no, 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 it's normal. So you're sort of policing other people's reactions. And they wow. just grow out of it. And it, it caused an issue with discipline because once my daughter got to f three or four, she knew that she passed out if she lost her temper. So she was able to say to me, are you going to take this dolly away from me? Because if you do... Do you, do you know gonna... what's going to happen? I've passed out. There's someone who thinks you're Nick Grimshaw over there filming. They're going to they're gonna film it. They're going to put it on. Is that what you fucking want? I'll see you at the till, mother and I'll have the accessories for the Barbie as well. So that was what my life was like for two years. So if anyone out there is suffering from involuntary breath holding, you're not alone, and I know how embarrassing it is. It's embarrassing. Like on an aeroplane, I'm like holding a blue baby all the way home. People thought I was just... She, my daughter passed out three times on the flight from Mallorca. Um, oh. Because you can't, you can't really say to a two-year-old, you must fasten your seatbelt if they don't want to fasten it. You know, So she, I just had to let go limp like that. <laughs> uh, and they just grow out of it. I mean, so if you want to know about disciplinary challenge, involuntary breath holding this, is, is about as far as it This sounds go. like the most amazingly funny parenting film ever. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's crazy. And and so many people are shocked. But I went to go to the doctors. Oh, yeah, involuntary breath holding. We see about three a week. It's nothing. She'll grow out of it. You can't even get referred to a consultant. It's so normal. Wow. Wow. Listen, Russell, thank you so much for coming and joining us on this podcast. What have you got coming up? Have you got anything that you want to tell the folks about? Oh, I wish I could. I've just um, had an amazing news about a big um, eight-parter. So look out for that. It's, it's just Let's just say there's big news to come in eight-part form somewhere on some subject, on some type of thing. That's coming up, hopefully filming later in the year. Uh, I'm working on, always working on a scripted project, which never happens. So I'm currently working on a scripted project, which will probably never happen. Um, uh, summer break at the moment, but obviously look out for me. Channel 4, daytime. Um, I'm on Steph's Pack Lunch helping to host that. I do comedy on there, all kinds of interviews and chats. And most importantly, the tour. Um, that is on the road until spring next year. Yes, this leg is sold out, but I've just added a load of autumn dates. And due to the cost of living crisis, tickets are available. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And I'm going to add to that. If you haven't, and if you've got Audible, go and listen to... Um, your book, Son of a Silverback, Son of a Silverback Son of... because yeah. I had a great time. Literally, I'd get to a school drop-off or, or a gymnastics drop-off, drop the kid off, get him out of the car, bosh, on it would go again. And oh, I, no. I, I had a good old <laughs> laugh. And it, yeah. I think it resonated even more with me because I knew the places you were talking about. So yeah, 
definitely worth it. It's, it's like seven hours of of stand up, but it's it's in fact it's not my life. It's it runs from 1941 to 2003, so it tells all of my life up until I started stand up. But it actually tells the life of Dave, my dad, and it uses that it uses that prism to talk about masculinity, class, race is in there a lot. It's um, you'd be surprised how much generic white guy can have been affected so much by race. So have a have a read. See what you think. You've just reminded me of one of the things that in the book, and it was when your dad turned up at the club and someone else was wearing the same shirt as him and he drove around oh, the yeah. corner, dude. I'm not going to spoil it for the folks, but yeah, I was like, Whoa. That was, that was when he, that, and my mum continued dating him after that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> women, man. You've only got to switch on Love Island so that women love a psycho. Uh, dude. <laughs> dude, have a great rest of your day. All right, thank you. Take it easy, dude. Goodbye. See you later. Woo! An hour with Russell Kane and I could have easily done another hour or two. We got through so much, but really tackled some really, really important and deep things. We might have to get him on again. So there you go, another episode done. But what did you think of it? We would love to know. Leave us a review or a comment on Apple Podcasts or on social media about this episode or the series as a whole. And don't forget, if you want to be first to hear brand new episodes, make sure you subscribe by your preferred podcast platform. To find out more about Dadvengers, make sure you head to our website, dadvengers.com, where there is information about our live chats, our dad walks, our blog posts, and more. We'll see you soon.